47 Moselle Road in Allison? Yes, sir. 
<laughs> what is your telephone number? And does anything look out of place? Ma'am, I, I, not, not particularly, really, no, ma'am. Okay. Okay. All right, I'm going back down there. Ma'am. Yeah, they're, they've been en route with you ever since uh, you got on the phone with me. I have multiple people coming out there to you. Listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, I've been extremely busy with so many cases, but many of you have written to me asking me to analyse and deconstruct the same case, and that's what people have called the Murdoch murders. This case has been in the news a lot recently given the trial, 
And I have to say that this case is particularly distressing and mind-blowing in equal measures. It's multifaceted, complicated and complex, and seemingly never-ending. There are multiple victims. Maggie Murdoch, Paul Murdoch, Mallory Beach, Gloria Satterfield and Stephen Smith. These are the ones that we know about, and you may not have heard about all of them, but I believe they've been unfortunately forgotten in the noise of this family, the Murdoch family. What's apparent to me straight away is that many people have talked about this case and covered it. However, most don't actually understand it, or the victims, or Alec Murdoch, and so I'm going to break it down for you. But before I dive into the case, here's the usual trigger warning right up front. Listener discretion is advised. The clip that you just heard at the top of the episode was the 911 call that Alec Murdoch made on June the 7th from Mazelle, the Murdoch family home. Alec Murdoch claims to have discovered the bodies of his wife Maggie and his 22-year-old son Paul. They were both shot dead between 9 and 9.30pm. Alec Murdoch made that call at 10.07pm and first responders arrived 18 minutes later. Although Moselle, the family home where Paul and Maggie died, is in Collerton County, Murdoch's cell phone initially directed the call to Hampton County 911. In my work, as with all cases, the victimology, crime scene assessment and analysis and the timeline are very important, and so I'm going to get into all of that, as well as the 911 call. A 911 call that's almost eight minutes long. Now that's a significant amount of time, and having analysed many 911 calls across my career, I can tell you that there were several fascinating gear shifts. And I'm going to get into it and break it down, just like I did with the body camera footage in the police stop in Gabby Petito's case, so that you understand what I hear and my analysis. Also, by way of background for you, the double murder of Maggie and Paul was my point of entry into the case, and so this is where I'm going to start. Now, my initial reaction to this was how horrific, a mother and her adult 22-year-old son being murdered in the same event. That's quite rare, but I have worked a number of cases where this has happened. In those cases, a firearm was used, and the son was shot first, and then the mother. In those cases, the perpetrator was the estranged husband-father. So my immediate questions were, who last saw the victims alive? Who discovered their bodies? Who made the 911 call? Who was the husband and father? Who held the power? How were they killed? Where were they killed? What was going on prior to the murders? What was going on in their relationships prior to this? Was there coercive control? Was there separation? Now questions one to five are significant questions, and all of them have the same answer. Alec Murdoch. That cannot be ignored, nor should it be ignored. And just to underline that point, four to five women are murdered every day here in America by a former or current male partner. Also, we know that most domestic violence murders happen at home, and it's the man, the husband and father who's the perpetrator. And 76% of the murders happen at the point of separation. And in almost all of them, coercive control features. In many of those cases, the victims are lost in the noise, just like in this case. 
The Murdoch family and Alec Murdoch have overshadowed the victims, and you'll know it's important for me and my work to centre the victims and make sure they don't become footnotes. I'll also share with you that when I've been discussing this case with people, what's really upset me is that many of them have said things like, but why, oh why, did he kill his son? I just don't understand it. How could he do that? How could he kill his son? And yes, spoiler alert, Alec Murdoch has been convicted for the double murders of Maggie and Paul following a six-week trial. And even at the trial, there seemed to be a lot of focus on Paul and not Maggie. Now that greatly disturbs me. You see, the subtext is that we value men more than we value women. Also, it talks to violence against women and femicide being so common that we don't even comment on it. We just expect it. Without acknowledgement, without the shock and horror that it merits, without wanting to understand why he did it, and without condoning it, it comes off as nothing to see here. Violence against women, femicide and familicide are not inevitable. It's not something that just happens, and it certainly doesn't happen in a vacuum, and nor should we ever normalise it. It's abhorrent, and I believe it to be preventable. This case has all the hallmarks of a family annihilation, a family wipeout, a domestic murder, and I believe that the domestic abuse and coercive control has been completely overlooked in this case, and I want to correct the narrative, because so many just don't understand coercive control or coercive controllers. It's like the invisible man. The invisible man is omnipresent and omnipotent, but only the victim sees him. Only you, the victim, knows his power and control. Only you see him. And I mean truly see him for what he is. Others often believe him to be a nice guy. A good bloke. And to those people, I want to share this with you. He may act that way to you if you do exactly what you're told and submit. Or if you present no challenge to him. Or if you have something he wants or needs. But the coercive controller always needs power over. There's an imbalance of power, and it's at the heart of the coercive control offence. We have to look at cases and understand who has the power over whom to understand the dynamics of abuse and who's the true victim and who's the perpetrator. And if the perpetrator has always controlled every person and everything around them, they may not need to resort to physical violence, but they may need to threaten it every now and again just to keep control and that person in check. However, if they believe they're losing control, then they can be capable of anything. And that's when a catastrophic event like a murder or murders may happen. Now, before I get into it, I want to let you know that I did watch the three-part Netflix docuseries Murdoch Murders, A Southern Scandal. And I also watched the three-part HBO docuseries called Low Country. And I've listened to most of the Murdoch Murders podcast by Mandy Matney. I also watched a lot of The Trial, but both the Netflix and HBO docuseries were shot and premiered before the trial took place. That's important to acknowledge as far more is known now. Also, I watched the body-worn camera footage which some of the first attending officers had on them at the scene of Maggie and Paul's double murder on June the 7th and the law enforcement interviews and interrogations of Alec Murdoch. Now, I've listened to many professionals talk about this case, 
And as I said, this is a complex case. But from what I can ascertain, not many people really get this case. Lots of people have an opinion, of course, but they don't really understand it. So please listen to my Crime Analyst series. You'll hear some new thoughts and information. And if you are looking for something to watch, I do recommend you start with the Netflix Murdoch Murders docuseries, purely on the basis that you'll hear far more about Paul Murdoch from his girlfriend, Morgan Doughty. And I believe that's highly relevant to understanding this whole case. Morgan is truly amazing. She bravely talks out about her relationship with Paul and the Murdoch family. And that was before the trial happened, which shows just how courageous she was. I'm laying down a marker here that all was not well with Paul or with the Murdoch family, despite some of the media and others painting a picture of the perfect family and that these double murders just came out of the blue. Far from it. Like I always say, scratch beneath the surface, ask the right questions, and a very different picture will emerge. This has happened in all the cases that I've worked across my 27 years. So, in addition to listening to Crime Analyst, I'd also highly recommend that you listen to Mandy Matney's multi-part series called The Murdoch Murders Podcast. Mandy was covering this case right from the start. It's truly enterprise reporting, and she's gone deep into the family dynamics and the complicated relationships that they had with many others in the Low Country. Importantly, Mandy's not afraid to call it as it is. She doesn't shy away from calling out corruption and the good old boys' network, which is really the patriarchy, and she goes in on the Murdochs. And yet I guess you could say that she's a woman after my own heart. Now, full disclosure, I have contacted Mandy to ask if she'll come on Crime Analyst and talk with me. But I guess Cheryl Crow and some of the other huge gigs that she's getting right now will likely be prioritised and overshadowed by my little old request. Although we are on the same podcast network. So let's see. I'm ever optimistic. And if you don't ask, you don't get, right? Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want a wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics luxury beauty that gives back. 
Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Okay, so with all of that having been said, I want to start with the Murdoch family. And I do want to focus on Maggie and Paul specifically. But in order to understand them, we need to understand the Murdoch family. Now, I'm an outsider, of course, and it's difficult from the outside to fully understand the power flex and generations of power that this white family held across everything and everyone in South Carolina, and in particular regarding law and order. But I believe you cannot understand this case without getting into the dynamics of power and control on a macro level as well as on a micro level. The Murdoch family name was a mighty and powerful name in that region. Alec Murdoch's father, grandfather and great-grandfather served as the elected solicitor, who's the equivalent of the district attorney, for a whopping 87 years in the five-county region of South Carolina Low Country. In fact, the grandfather's portrait had hung for 20 years on the wall of the courtroom, the very courtroom Alec Murdoch sat as a defendant in the dock for Maggie and Paul's murders. The picture was taken down for the trial. Many local people were totally flabbergasted by the fact that Alec Murdoch was even arrested and the fact that he was put on trial, given the power the Murdoch family wielded. You see, in plain terms, and I'd rather speak plainly and directly, and I know that's what many of you love and appreciate about what I do and about crime analysts, the Murdoch family was the law. And what they said went... You see, the Murdoch family also ran the largest firm of civil lawyers in the county region as well. Alec Murdoch was a very talented trial lawyer before he got disbarred, and I'll come on to that. He was a personal injury lawyer, and he volunteered part-time as a prosecutor. Apparently, he was somewhat of a local legend. He understood the legal system extremely well, and he understood the emotional temperature of people extremely well. He also carried a solicitor's badge, which he would dangle out of his trouser pocket as a warming effect to law enforcement to gain advantage. And that's not all. He had blue lights for his personal vehicle. Blues and twos, as we call them in the UK. But he wasn't a law enforcement officer. What does that tell you about Alec Murdoch? It tells me that Alec Murdoch and the Murdoch family were very closely connected and entwined with law enforcement. In essence, they controlled criminal law and the enforcers and civil law. In other words, he and his family had law enforcement and this area locked down. 
Just think about that for a moment and the implications and the conflict of interest of that and the power that they wielded. We're not just talking about your average Joe here, and you have to understand that in order to get anywhere close to understanding this case. So here's a quick and helpful explainer about the Murdoch family. For nearly 100 years, the Murdoch family has kept a stranglehold on the legal system in the southwest corner of South Carolina. Election after election, Murdoch filled the seat of the 14th Circuit Solicitor with the full power of the prosecutor's office over five counties. The rise to power started with Randolph Murdoch Sr., who won the open seat in 1920. He was killed with his got stuck on train tracks and was hit by a freight train in 1941. He left behind two children. His son Randolph Buster Murdoch took over the solicitor's position before retiring in 1986, passing the torch to his only child, Randolph Murdoch III. After 86 years of unbroken control over the solicitor's office, Randolph decided to leave in 2005 for the law firm Murdoch Sr. started in 1910. He had four children, including Richard Alexander Alec Murdoch, who's now on trial for double homicide in the shooting deaths of his wife Maggie and his youngest son Paul. The pair had another child, Richard Alexander Buster Murdoch. The influence of the Murdoch family extends to the very courtroom where Alex will be tried. So much so, the judge in the case had a portrait of Alex's grandfather removed from the courtroom for the duration of the trial. It's a really important context to unravel. You see, when I was analysing Officer Daniel Green's body-worn camera footage, Daniel Green, who attended the Moselle double homicide scene on June the 7th, I observed some very bizarre things that told me something very odd was going on. And now with this level of detail, it starts to make sense. Not good sense, but sense. And as I always say, the devil really is in the detail, and the law enforcement response was confounding, and that's me being polite and diplomatic. I'll tell you more about that when I get to it. I hope you're getting the picture, and in case you're lost, the headlines for me are... Alec Murdoch was a man who had immense white privilege, power and wealth. Alec Murdoch was used to getting what he wanted. Alec Murdoch was a man that no one would dare challenge or say no to. Alec Murdoch's family were protected at every turn. This entitled and privileged man was used to manipulating others to gain the advantage. Alec Murdoch has spent his life controlling the narrative and being in control. You see, there was no real challenge to his authority up until 2019. Up until a key event that sent everything and everyone, including Alec Murdoch, spinning out of control. And that event was the horrific death of 19-year-old Mallory Beach. Now before I tell you about Mallory, and Mallory is extremely important in all of this, I want to return to Maggie and Paul and the victimology. And I'm going to start by telling you about Maggie. I don't think she wasn't the type of person that would stand out in a crowd, but she was always there, you know, to to back everybody up. She wasn't flashy at all. Um, I think in some ways, too, she's shy. She loved her family. I mean, her boys, she also was very close to her parents and her sister. She was a dutiful wife to, you know, supporting Alec. He's larger than life. He takes, you know, she stands back. So she just, you know, 
supported him, was quiet. She was a good mom. She doted on those boys almost too much because, I mean, they didn't even really know how to wash their clothes. <laughs> she did everything for them. Um, and she did. She loved them a lot. And she was happy and proud and, you know, very loving. We had to really start trying to think about good times and remember Maggie the way she was and not who, what happened. And she was a person, she was a mother, she was a sister, she was a friend, she was a daughter. You know, she's not the, the wife that was murdered. I mean, we don't want her to be remembered that way. She was fun, she had a personality, that she was witty, you know, that she had, you know, she loved things, she loved her family. Margaret, or Maggie, Kennedy Brandstetter, was born in the Nashville area in 1968 and moved around between Tennessee, Pennsylvania, and then finally South Carolina. Maggie was close to her parents, Terry and Kennedy Brandstetter, who still live in South Carolina. She went to the University of South Carolina for undergrad, where she met Alec Murdoch. Now, Alec was Maggie's first real boyfriend, They married in 1993. Lisa Heinemann Moore, a friend of Maggie's from running track in high school, explained to the New York Post the Southern girl's dream was to finish college, maybe but more importantly, find a husband, get married and have kids. She added that she believed Maggie had gotten in too deep and didn't have a voice, but she had to be quiet on account of who she was married to. That was the tragedy, I think, she said. Now Maggie moved with Alec to Hampton, South Carolina. Some people have said that Maggie didn't like the town or its poverty, but she loved Alec as well as the status his name held in the area. So what's important to me here is that a young, impressionable Maggie married into the Murdoch family, and Alec was her first real boyfriend. Going back to what her friend Lisa Heinemann Moore said, the friend from running track in high school, she believed that Maggie had gotten in too deep and that she didn't have a voice and that she was quiet on the account of who she was married to. I think that's really quite important. Maggie had to be quiet. She didn't have a voice. This was a very powerful family and Alec was a powerful man used to getting his own way. And interestingly, it came out that Maggie wasn't living at Moselle at the time she was murdered. She was living at the beach house. In other words, they were separated, and it sounds like this was at Maggie's instigation. Also, in the weeks before the murder, Maggie saw a divorce lawyer, and she was concerned about Paul, and she had also consulted a forensic accountant and was asking Alec about their money. Alec also had a drug problem, and Maggie knew about it. In episode 30 of the Murdoch Murders podcast, Mandy Matney reported, as well as the Daily Mail reported, that Maggie had had a cheque bounce at a charity luncheon, which had caused fighting about money and drugs. So to me, it sounds like there was a dynamic shift. Maggie was finding her voice. She had separated from Alec, and she was questioning him about money, and I doubt Alec was too happy about that. So why was Maggie at Moselle on June the 7th? Well, what's clear from her text messages is that Alec asked Maggie to go there. And at the trial, Marion, Maggie's sister, who Maggie had called multiple times the day of the murder, well, Marion said that she was the one who pushed Maggie to go to Moselle on June the 7th to, in inverted commas, support her husband, with the understanding that Randolph, Alec's father, was sick from cancer. In other words, 
Alec played the sympathy card. And that sympathy card is important because women care and are sympathetic and empathetic no matter what's going on. And Maggie decided to go and meet him at Moselle because of what he told her. He manipulated her into going. And Maggie told a friend that she thought Alec was up to something. And you know what? Her intuition was right. However, Maggie overrode her intuition and she went anyway. Paul was there too. Alec had said that he'd been driving around with Paul most of the afternoon. Coincidence? I doubt it. Both there, the same time, the same place, where Maggie would normally be elsewhere in the evenings. So that's important to remember when we think about the timeline. Okay, so let's talk about Paul. Some of Paul's friends, well, mainly Anthony Cook, said that he was a good guy, despite evidence to the contrary, and others who knew him well said that he did some absolutely horrific things to people with dire consequences. Paul was quiet, but some said that he was a troublemaker. His ex-girlfriend Morgan did say some positive things about him, despite also disclosing horrific abuse and cruelty that she suffered at Paul's hands. She and his other friends talked about Paul's need to drink to obliteration, and that his family didn't intervene, rather they seemed to actively encourage it. Now the picture that emerged for me was that of an entitled young man who was a troublemaker, and who treated others abysmally. And I don't say this lightly, I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but I'm going to call it out for what it is. You see, I'm not going to gloss over or airbrush out the serious abuse that Paul subjected Morgan to and which others witnessed on the night of February the 23rd, 2019, when 19-year-old Mallory Beach was flung out of the boat and into the water. Paul was driving the boat that night. For me, it's significant and extremely relevant. Paul and his friends, Anthony Cook, Mallory Beach, who Anthony was dating, Morgan Doughty, Paul's ex-girlfriend, Connor Cook, Anthony's cousin, and Miley Altman, Mallory's best friend, had all been to an oyster roast party, which they arrived at and left via Paul's father's boat. They had all been drinking. Paul had drunk to excess that night. Now, Paul's friend said that when he got absolutely blind drunk, that Timmy would come out. This other character when Paul would be so drunk that he couldn't control his hands and was acting so belligerently, well, they would call that side to Paul Timmy. But you know what? For me, it was just an inebriated, belligerent and vile Paul, so I'm just going to carry on calling him Paul. Well, they left the oyster roast at around midnight, and even after drinking vast quantities of alcohol, Paul wanted more, and he insisted on stopping at a bar on the way home. They all got back in the boat, and then Paul started playing around doing donuts, and the passengers were terrified. Paul had a conniption. He wouldn't allow anyone else to take the wheel. Morgan then tried to reason with him. His response? Paul called Morgan names, and he spat at her and slapped her in front of everyone, and they all saw it. That's what was new on this occasion. And that was Paul. That's on him. Well, my first questions when I found out about this were... Why did Paul need to drink so much? What was going on in his life that he needed to escape from? And why was he abusive to Morgan? And where did he learn that from? After Paul assaulted Morgan, he then put his hand down on the throttle of the boat 
and accelerated away in the pitch darkness. The boat smashed into the bridge at Arthur's Creek. Most of the passengers were thrown from the boat on impact. Paul could have killed them all. Mallory was literally in Anthony's arms when the crash happened. They were both flung out of the boat with the force of the impact. They both entered the water, but only Anthony resurfaced. Anthony started shouting frantically and desperately for Mallory. Then they were all shouting frantically for Mallory. Well, all except Paul. Connor called 911. Many law enforcement officers turned up. The surviving passengers were taken to hospital. Anthony didn't want to leave the river. He didn't want to go without Mallory. Paul, however, showed no sign of concern for Mallory or for the others, even at the hospital. In fact, he showed a callous disregard for Mallory and for everyone else. Instead, Paul called his father, Alec, and grandfather, and they met him at the hospital. Their response on arrival? Well, rather than use their resources and influence to help find Mallory, they spent their time talking to the passengers, telling them not to talk to law enforcement, and that if they were asked, they should say that Connor Cook was driving the boat. Now, having watched the footage of Alec Murdoch at the hospital, I can also report that whilst Alec was having these conversations with the passengers and with others, he had his solicitor's badge hanging out of his trouser pocket. You know, those credentials that he used to, in inverted commas, warm up law enforcement. Seven days later, Mallory's body was found, roughly five miles away from the crash site. Mallory is also a forgotten victim in all of this, and I have much more to say about Mallory and about Gloria Sattleworth, the Murdoch family housekeeper and nanny who died in 2018 at the Murdoch's property. Gloria's case is interconnected too, as is Stephen Smith's. More about all of that next week, as well as my deconstruction and analysis of the 911 call, the crime scene, the timeline the micro-timeline of the murder and the macro-sequence of events and timeline leading up to Maggie and Paul's murders. And the case doesn't end there. Until next week, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.